0: My name is Mikey. Uh, Welcome to church this morning. Um, It's great to be here. Um, Great songs, by the way, worship team. It seems like when you get to speak, um, the worship is so good on a Sunday morning when you get to speak. Um, Almost that I don't want to get up and ruin the worship. Um, We're going to come back to worship at the end. So I'll tell you that the end point of this sermon, we are going to come back to worship the main point of the sermon and the passage today is this question of who God is and how we respond to him as his people. We've been going through 1 Samuel, so you could turn with me to, to 1 Samuel. I don't know if you've been journeying with us to, through Samuel, um, but if you took the time to read through First and 2 Samuel, you would see the theme that comes through is... This question of who is God, what is his character, and then what is our heart towards him supposed to be in light of that? Um, The heart is the issue all the way through. How we respond to God is the issue all the way through. And you have clear contrasts all the way through. You have Samuel contrasted with the sons of Eli. Samuel, someone who respects God, who fears God, who is holy. Uh, The sons of Eli have no regard for God. They, They are serving in the temple. They are stealing. They are Uh, sleeping with people in the temple. As a result, God dismisses them and raises up Samuel to be one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. You have Saul and David contrasted. Saul, outward appearance, great. David, uh, the heart after God, maybe not the initial outward appearance that you would choose. And yet throughout the unfolding of Samuel, you see that David is the one who God blesses, establishes as king, and Saul is the one that he rejects. Because David's heart is right before God. And so all the way through Samuel, you see this picture of God as holy. And then the question is, how are we going to respond? So I'm going to come back at the end of the sermon to worship. That's where we're going to end up. To get there, we're in First, Second Samuel chapter 6 specifically. How would you individually view God? Not as a how would you describe him theologically based on what you know is true, but the question of how would you view God in your experience of God, and your relationship with God, as you know Him personally, how would you know Him? How would you describe Him? Because when we say God, I think we can think that it's a common denominator and we all mean the same thing, but chances are, actually I guarantee that all of us would have slightly different views of God because God is indescribable, right? So we'd have slightly different perceptions of Him, but chances are that in this room, some of us would have some very different perceptions of who God is. And some very different ideas of who God is, so when we say God we might not necessarily mean the same thing. so the question I'd ask you is, is how would you describe God? what words would you use to describe him and describe your uh, how you would relate to him? Um, the question that this text deals with is a uh, picture of God's character and, and I want you to first be thinking, okay, how do I view God and then how does this line up with my view of God? And, and because we are dealing with um, God is and the character of God this morning, I would like to begin by praying because it is a, a weighty task to preach on the character of God and preach on who God is. And the text that we have today, uh, Uzzah and the Ark, is one that could raise some serious questions about how we view God and challenge our view of God today. And uh, when you look at preaching or teaching in the New Testament, uh, it should be that God, through His Spirit, is teaching us as a church through me as I preach. You don't want to hear my words or only my opinion of God. You want God to teach us and encounter us today and show, Him, show us as a church who He is. So I'm, I want to pray to start, and I would encourage you to pray along with me. Um, let's seek God as we begin and ask that He would reveal who He is today to us as a church. Um, yeah, so would you pray with me? Lord God, um, Heavenly Father, thank you that we as a church get to come and worship you this morning. Um, And right now we get to come and open your word, uh, literally your word, Lord, um, that you would come and speak to us through your word. I ask that you would do that. Um, Think of that question, Lord, of how we view God. And and I know that all of us will have a different perception of our view of you, Lord. The thing that I would ask for us as a church at Hukanui this morning as we open your word and look at how you reveal yourself in scripture is that you would be at work in each of our hearts in this church, uh, revealing who you are, revealing where our view of you is wrong, uh, reminding us where our view of you is right, but but reminding us again of that. Would you show us this morning who you are as the living God and who we come and worship this morning? So please be at work in, in our hearts. Lord, I ask for me as I teach that, you would be with me, that it would be your word speaking through me as we, as we open your scriptures and that you would use me this morning uh, in this church to, to grow us in our knowledge and our view of you, Lord. Um, may we grow closer to you this morning as we open your word and then as we respond and worship at the end. Um, so I pray these things to you as we begin and, and trust that you, that you will work according to them. We pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Cool. So hopefully you're at 2 Samuel chapter 6. Um, it is a great text today that we are looking at. To begin with, uh, the central thing in this chapter is the Ark of God. So I think we should give a bit of context to the Ark of God, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony, um, something that God commanded Moses to make right back in Exodus. And it was supposed to go in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. Um, and, and what it symbolized, was it, it was the presence and power of God with Israel. It, w- it was a thing that signified that God dwelt there and it dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And that was where the presence of God was. So the ark was a gold plated uh, chest with two cherubim carved on the top and a mercy seat on the top as well. And um, the idea was that when Moses would go into the Holy of Holies to speak with God, God would speak to him from above the, from above the mercy seat and from between the cherubim. And so this, this was the place where God would meet uh, with Moses. And the ark itself symbolized God's presence with Israel. Uh, So it had a lot of significance. And throughout Samuel, you see the significance in that the Israelites would take it out to battle with them, and it was symbolized to them that God was going with them. Except right at the start of Samuel, when you see them take it out, their hearts are not right with God. They have no regard for honoring God as holy. They just want to take the ark with them to have God's blessing, but they, they have no regard for following God only. And so they take the ark with them and they think that they're gonna win. And the Philistines look on. They see that the ark of God has come into the camp of the Israelites and they say, oh, we're doomed. The God has come to dwell amongst their camp. We're doomed. But they fight anyway. And God rejects the Israelites that day because they did not honor him. And if you remember Gary talking about it, uh, halfway through last year, they took the symbol for God as assuming that God would be with them. But the point there is that you could see the importance that it played it showed that God was with Israel. It showed that was where the presence of God was. The ark was taken to the Philistine camp and, and they placed it in the temple of the Philistines. And um, the God Dagon was the God of the Philistines was up next to the Ark of the Covenant. And the first night that the Ark of the Covenant was in there, the God Dagon falls to the ground and, and the next morning is in a worship position of the Ark of the Covenant. So the Philistines are like, okay, well, it just fell over. It's just an accident. Let's put it back up. The next morning, the same thing's happened, only this time the God of Dagon has been broken in pieces. Uh, And while this is happening, God is breaking out against the the city of the Philistines. And they say, we can't have the Ark of the Covenant here anymore. God can't dwell amongst us. We need to send it away. So they send it back to Israel. And and it gets sent on a cart pulled by by two uh, uh, milk cows. And it goes to the house of Abinadab. And this is way back in 1 Samuel, and it says that it's left there for 20 years. And that is where we pick up the story 20 years later with David saying, I want to go and grab the ark and bring it to Jerusalem. So shall we read from 6 verse 1 of 2 Samuel? David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. So if, if, if you imagine the scene, they're carrying the ark of God on a cart. A heo is going before it. Uh, the oxen and Uzzah is presumably behind the oxen stumble. The ark is about to fall and hit the ground. So Uzzah does what I would consider would be quite natural is to put out his hand and stop the ark from falling so that it doesn't hit the ground. And, And you're reading along. And if you didn't know where the story went, you'd be surprised with the next verse because God strikes down Uzzah. His anger was kindled against Uzzah. In the ESV, it says, because of his error, NIV, your version might have because of his irreverent act. I want to ask you, when you think of your view of God, and if you think of the words you would use to describe God, maybe, uh, I don't know what you would choose, um, but if you think of them, does that align with the story of God presented right here? Because when I look at the story, first of all, I, I tell you honestly, I look and I think, That doesn't make sense to me. It seems like Uzzah didn't do something that bad. It seems like his heart was in the right place here. Um, Maybe you look at this and you think, I don't understand that, God. Maybe you are angered at that because God would strike someone down in that way. Um, Maybe you view God in this text as like, well, that seems very unpredictable to me. Um, I don't know what you think when you look at it, but I want you to see what David's response is. In verse 8, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. David, man after God's own heart, someone who is praised in the Old Testament, his first response was that he was angry. So keep that in mind. You don't have to, if if your first response is that you're you're angry at that, hey, so was David. David's next response is that he was afraid of the Lord that day. In verse 9, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David responds, at first he was angry and then he feared the Lord because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. Um, th- those initial reactions, I, they were my initial reactions, but as I've been able to study the text and look, there are some things that we need to note to help us understand the context and understand exactly what Uzzah did. It's a bit more than maybe what we uh, see at first. And to do that, we're going to have to go back to, to Numbers. So if you're someone who likes to uh, note in your Bible different verse references, or if you have a pen or a notebook, um, maybe just write that verse reference of Numbers 4 next to that story. Um, Turn with me to Numbers 4. If you're taking notes, note down Numbers 4. This is where God was giving the commands to the Israelites around how the holy things, such as the Ark of the Covenant, were to be transported. Uh, God had chosen the Levites to be the people who would deal with the things of the, of the temple and the tabernacle who would serve him. And specifically within the Levites, he had chosen the clan of the Kohathites. I still don't know how to say that in a way that sounds good, from Kohath. Um, and that is the clan that Aaron and Moses are from. So, so notice the command that God gives here. In verse four, this is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting, the most holy things. When the camp is set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the Ark of the Testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of goatskin and spread on top of that a cloth all of blue, and they shall put in its poles. So the first thing, when when the Ark of the Covenant is being disassembled so that they can move to the next place, uh, only the priests, sons of Aaron, were able to go in and they had to first cover it and they had to put poles into it okay, so that no one could look on it and so that no one would have to touch it when it's moved. The next thing that happened is once that it happened, Aaron uh, would, would tell the Kohathites, okay, you can come in and you can move the Ark of the Covenant now, but don't touch it. You carry it by these poles. You do not touch the Ark. If you look down at 4 verse 15, it says halfway through, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. And if you look down at verse 17, the Lord realizes that this is a very dangerous thing, moving the things of God. And he says to Moses and Aaron, let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal with them that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment lest they die. Just to summarize, if you missed that, God says they cannot touch the holy things. And in actual fact, they cannot even look on the holy things unless they die. Do you see the reverence here in this? The idea and the theme that you see coming through Leviticus and Numbers is that God is a holy, holy God. He is separate. He is set apart. And the question that they're playing with is, how does God as holy dwell with the sinful people? And this is part of that showing that as a sinful person, you cannot come to the presence of God. You cannot even look on the holy things. Otherwise you will die. There has to be a great reverence there and you have to do things according to the command. So only the priest can go in it first and then the people from the tribe of Kohath can move it um, from the clan of Kohath. And that for them was a picture of showing them, okay, this is what it means to relate to God. For us today, we don't have the Ark of the Covenant. We don't have... Um, We're not under the same rules, but the same principle that applies back here in Numbers and Leviticus applies for us when we come and we approach God. If you look at um, different parts of scripture, there are some stories dotted throughout scripture where men meet with God, where a human being gets to see God. And a great thing that you could do is, is go through those passages and just take some time once. Uh, and go away and think through those passages and see what those experiences were. The ones that I think of when I think of that are when Moses met God on the mountain, when Job meets God at the end of, end of Job and, and God comes to him in a whirlwind and then speaks to him. Uh, when Isaiah or Ezekiel meet God at the beginning of their, of their when they're called to be prophets. Uh, and then when John meets God in, in Revelation and sees God is uh, enthroned on heaven and sees the scene in heaven. All of them have this common theme that they describe the glory of God in in a unique way, but sort of common themes come through it. They describe the glory of God, but then the next thing that they describe is that they all respond in worship and in awe. And uh, so Moses, he falls to the ground with his face in the earth and he worships. Job says, I've heard about you, but now I see you and I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. He says, I've heard about you. I've heard about who you are God, but now that I see you, I'm not gonna say another word because you are holy and you are glorious and I am not gonna speak another word in your presence. Um, Isaiah says these words. I wanna actually look at them if you would turn to the ones in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter six. While you're turning there, those other ones, Ezekiel and John, they fall to the ground as though they were dead because they have seen God. My little brother once asked me, he said, uh, what do you think it would be like one day when we get to see God? He said, I would, that's just what I want to see so much. I don't know what that would be like. That is a question I'd ask. When you think about God, when you describe those words about God, think about that question. What would it be like when you one day see God? This is a scene of someone who sees God when Isaiah sees him. Uh, So back up at the start. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah's in the temple. So imagine that you're here in this church. You come in by yourself, maybe on a Saturday night or or a Friday night and no one's here and you come in and you see the Lord. You see a glimpse of him enthroned in heaven, seated on his throne, high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills this church, right? It comes down. And you're like, no way that I I can see God right there. He sees him high and lifted up and and above him stood the seraphim. Um, I think, I actually don't know. I think the seraphim and the cherubim are both high angels and potentially, I don't want to say that in case one day I get to heaven and the cherubim say, well, why did you say I was a seraphim? But I think they are similar in other parts of, uh, such as Revelation, they're called cherubim but the seraphim are there and they had six wings and with two, they covered their face, with two, they covered their feet and with two, they flew. So they are there, so the throne of God and then above the throne are two seraphim. They're not even looking at the throne of God because of the holiness of God and they are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Revelation, you see the same, the cherubim singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Almighty. They are worshiping the Lord. And then the next thing, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So imagine this, at the sound of the voice, this church shakes at the sound of the voice of him who calls. It'll be an amazing thing one one day when we get to see the holiness and the glory of God face to face. But then notice Isaiah's response. He says, woe is me, Woe is me is like the deepest guttural sound that you can make like, oh, I am about to be destroyed. I'm about to be annihilated. I cannot stand before this God. He says, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And every time you see someone encounter God, the thing that they notice is their sin and they bow down and worship to God. And one day when we appear before God and we see Him as He is, the thing that we will notice is our sin. And we will realize that we as human beings cannot dwell in the presence of this holy, holy God. Do you ever have those times where someone says, um, when I get to heaven, I'm going to let God know how angry I am about this situation? I really want to say like, when you get to heaven, you're not going to say anything at all. You're going to glorify this God when you see Him. And you are going to worship him because it'll be an amazing thing to see this God. You see the picture here, though? This is a holy God. And when we come before him, we're not going to be able to stand. Back in Numbers, what's shown there is that the God who dwells in the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, you cannot dwell there because he is a holy God. You cannot simply walk into the Holy of Holies, touch whatever you would like, touch the Ark of the Covenant and go in carelessly. And so, when you take that principle back to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, you can see their reverence in their approach to carrying the thing that showed the presence of God. So, if we just notice that um, God commanded that the Kohathites carried the Ark of the Covenant Um, Azza and Ahio here in the Samuel one, it doesn't say whether they are Levites, but I don't think that they are based on what David says later on in Chronicles. Um, So these are the wrong people at first managing the ark. The second thing is they have chucked the ark on a cart carried by an ox. When you read Numbers, I don't... Nowhere do you think, okay, well, what I'm going to do with this is chuck it on a cart, right? You just treat this with reverence. You carry it exactly as God said to carry it. You see the warning. They would have known this, and yet they've put it on a cart. There is an irreverence in their act. And so the first point that I want to make here for us is that we are not to be careless in our approach of God. We are not to be careless in our approach of God. Um, just think this morning. Um, we don't. We don't come to the temple, but when we come to church this morning and we worship, we worship before this God. We, uh, the Bible says that as we meet together, this God dwells amongst us. God is with us this morning as we meet. Yes. How has your approach been this morning to worship of God? Because I know for me, I can be careless in that sometimes. I can come and can be worshiping and my mind will be wandering all over the place and I'll think of the drums and I'll be like, that was an awesome drum solo. I wish I was drumming. Um, my mind can be so quickly taken off the God that I'm worshiping. So I'd ask you, are you careless in your approach to God? When we pray, we come and speak to this God. And I know for a big part of my life, I was very careless in the way that I would speak to God and prayer was just something you did as, as Christians. Um, Now I find it really hard because I love to take the space before I pray to think of who I pray to. And yet in some settings, when you're praying in public, you have to pray straight away. And I'm like, oh, I just want to take the time to think of who we're praying to. It's very easy to be careless in our approach to God. So I'd ask you um, to examine that. The second thing I'd say is that we are not to be careless with the commands of God. God gave very clear commands here around how they were to treat uh, this holy object of the Ark of the Covenant, and they disregarded it. In the Samuel account, if you read through, it seems that David waits three months, and then he goes and he gets the Ark and he brings it to Jerusalem successfully. In the Chronicles account, we get a bit more information. Um, so, if you're able to flick over with me to Chronicles, sorry, we are turning a wee bit. Uh, First Chronicles chapter 15. Chronicles covers the exact same story; just adds it adds a Um, a little bit more information to show us around it. David was angry at first, then David feared the Lord. And then in that three months, we can gather that David went away and thought around what they had done. And this is what he says in verse 11. David summoned the priests and he summoned the Levites. I won't read those names. And he said to them, you are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourself, you and your brothers so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded, according to the word of the Lord. Do You notice that David says, last time we did not seek God according to the rule. We did not follow his commands. You guys as Levites and priests didn't carry it. We got Azza and Ahio to carry it. Um, so this time when we move the Ark of God, we are going to do so according to what he's commanded us to do. Um, what they do is they do bring the Ark back successfully. God does not strike anyone else down. They bring it back to Jerusalem and the Ark is there in Jerusalem. But so I'd give us this challenge. We are not to be careless with the commands of God. Uh, the way that I would maybe flesh this out is ask you um, with the commands of God in Scripture for us as believers, how seriously do you take them? I know at times that I have been careless with the commands of God or have disregarded them completely at a time or said, man, does it really mean that? As I think there's a way around it. Um God calls us in Isaiah 66, he says, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. God looks for us to tremble at our word, to come to his word, not thinking, yeah, I'll see if I can make it work or if that works for me or is there another way around it, but to come to his word and say, this is what you've commanded, Lord, so I'm going to obey that. He says, because I am holy, you shall be holy and there is a call on our lives to be holy in the same way, to take his command seriously. And, um we're gonna to come to this later, but I, I know that we are under, under grace, um, but still there is, in the New Testament, in the New Testament epistles, there are serious warnings for, for rejecting the words of God and the commands of God. God is someone to be taken seriously. We are not to be careless with the commands of God. And they would be the two challenges that I would bring from this text. But what I wanna do is I wanna step away from, from the passage for a bit. Um, I think this passage shows us a view of God that hopefully will challenge each one of us to examine how we view God. Do we view him as this holy God? Are we careful when we approach him? Do we revere him? Do we fear him? But in terms of this broader question, which is central to the book of Samuel around how you view God, I don't think this gives us the full perspective. And interestingly, before I even knew I had this passage, I I was doing a lot of thinking around, okay, what is our view of God and what does it mean to relate to him? And and I want to share, I suppose, maybe my journey, because I look at a text like this, and I think it's very easy for us to say, "Take, take the points which we should, that God is holy and we should fear him, but leave it at that. And I think that that is only half the story. And as God reveals himself through scripture, and specifically through Samuel, you see the holiness of God and the fear of God, but you also see the other side, the love of God the fact that he calls us into relationship with him, the fact that we can know him. Um, the very next chapter in Samuel, if I was preaching on that, that the push and the drive in that would not be God's holiness, but it would be his, his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Um, so right back to back, you have these two different stories. So I don't want to just focus on, on on this. I want to take a step back from the story and look at how God reveals himself in Samuel and in the Bible as a whole. Think, Keeping in mind this question, each one of you that I want you to be asking, how do you view God? Uh, My story, I would say that growing up, I didn't have a great fear of God. I didn't have a great reverence for God. I couldn't have told you what holiness meant. I think on the relationship side with God, though, that's where uh, growing up, um, that's where I think my, my faith was centered. I was able to pray to God. I was able to talk to Him. I knew His peace and His love and the promises of the New Testament, but I think my life reflected that I didn't have this fear and reverence for who that God was. Um, in 2018, I've shared this before in church, and you might be like, "Oh, sharing this again," um, was one of the, probably the most profound spiritual moment that for my life, and that was when I began walking around Hamilton Lake, and, and I started doing it because I was like, "Okay, I need to get better at prayer." And I'm not great at praying, so I need to get better at it. So if I walk around, the idea would be that if I don't feel like praying when I'm halfway around, well, I'm stuck around the other side of the lake, so I have to keep going, right? Um, The first time I walked around, it was very hard to pray. I probably prayed for five minutes, and I was very distracted thinking about a whole lot of other things. But quickly within a week, within two weeks, I would pray all the way around the lake. And the thing that happened, which I didn't even intend to happen, but but just came about as a result of it is that I began to experience who this God was, which had never happened before. And I remember I began starting my prayers thinking of of who this God was, that he was the creator of the world, that he was this awesome God that I was able to come and speak to. And I was like, okay, well, I will give the space. Now there was about maybe 200 meters that I would walk. And I'd say that is the space that I'll give to thinking about who God is. and, And then I'll go into my prayer time. Within a month, though, that prayer time quickly became uh, far longer than that of just worshiping this God, realizing that this God who is enthroned in heaven right now, who seraphim are worshiping him, he's enthroned in glory, that if I was to come before, I would just fall on my face and worship him, that when I pray, I'm able to come and speak to him, that this God is for me, that I'm able to cast my anxieties on him because he cares for me, And what happened over those two, three months is that my view of God and my reverence for God grew and my relationship with God and the way I related to him and my understanding of his love and his uh, mercy for me also grew at the same time. I share that because when I look at people or when I talk to some people, I see that some people are really good in one aspect and they miss the other one. Um, Some people might have a great reverence for God, a great fear of God, understand him as holy but to reconcile that with the fact that they're able to relate to him and and uh, know him intimately as a father that they are able to be a child of God they're like that I don't know how that works Um, or other people who have a great relationship with God and know God's love and experience and worship him but they don't have a reverence for God and so holiness is not that big a deal Um, I don't know if I've explained that clearly that's just something I've observed and, and So this text here, I think, gives a great challenge for the holiness side, for the fear of God. But I wanna step back from the text and look at this other side as well. And so I wanna camp out at this final text, which is Exodus 34. One thing to note as we we come to this, the name of God or the idea of the name in Hebrew is really, really important um, and shows the identity of a person. And if you look throughout Genesis, God reveals himself as El Shaddai, which is God Almighty. But when we come to Exodus and God reveals himself to Moses, he says, I will be known by the name Yahweh, which is to do with the fact that he says, I am who I am. And he introduces this new name through which he is to be known by. The start of Exodus, we don't get much more context than that. But here in chapter 33 and 34, we see what that name means. And that is the character of God. That is who God is. So picture the scene with me. Moses is dial, uh, in dialogue with God and he says, I want, to, I want to see your glory. That's what he asks. He says, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can see my glory, but you cannot see me face to face or else you will die. So what I'll do is I'll put you in a cleft in the rock. I will cover you with my hand as I pass by and, and you can look at the back of me. That's all you can see because you cannot see my face and live. So the next morning, Moses gets up early. He comes to the mountain. And God Himself comes down and appears to Him. Verse 5 of chapter 34 The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the children on the fathers, on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Expanding on his name, on his character, this is who God is. And there is so much you could look at in this, I'm not going to, but this is the verse that throughout the rest of the Bible, you will see pop up again and again and again and again. When people like Daniel and uh, Nehemiah and Solomon pray, they pray these, this verse. In the Psalms, this name of God, the idea that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, comes through again and again. Through the prophets, this is mentioned again and again. This is the verse which is the reason why God saved the Ninevites in the story of Jonah. And the same verse is used to describe why he destroyed the Ninevites 200 years later. This is the verse all the way through, and it's God's character. This is who God is. And I want you to notice some things. He is slow to anger. So God does get angry. The story that we see today shows a part where God gets angry. Uh, God does uh, punish, it, uh, will by no means clear the guilty. There are, he does punish sin. You see that through scripture. But I want you to see the balance here. God's character is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That for me outweighs. The, the fact that he does get angry and punishes sin. And as you look at the Old Testament, what we've done today is looked at a passage in 2 Samuel 6 that highlights a time where God gets angry. And there are a few passages like that in the Old Testament. We need to look at them and realize that God is to be taken seriously. But the number of passages that show his mercy and his grace and his compassion and his steadfast love far outnumber the ones that show his wrath in the Old Testament, I would say. Um, ultimately shown in the story of Isaiah. We didn't finish it, but Isaiah, a seraphim comes and puts a coal on Isaiah's lips and says, you sin has been atoned for, a picture for the ultimate place where God demonstrates his steadfast love and faithfulness in the cross of Christ. And if you think of the verse, there's a verse in Ephesians, which says, God, because of his mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace we have been saved. Um, The cross of Christ shows this character of God, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, showing love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And what that means, I suppose what that means for me when I think about it is that God is not this God up here waiting for me to fail so that he can strike me down like he struck down Azar but his character is one that abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is his, I don't know how, how to put that. That is, his, um, that is his natural, his go-to before his wrath, if that makes sense. Anyone who calls on the Lord, when I look at the Old Testament, everyone who calls on the Lord experiences the steadfast love of God. And um, We see that in the cross and we see that as believers today. Think of the verses that this God we're talking about is the one that says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that he gave us not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption as sons, that we can now call him as father, that this God is for us, and that this God is working all things together for our good. These are promises that we have Christians have because of the abounding steadfast love of God. So what I would ask you, as you think about your view of God, each one of you here, which, which side of that spectrum do you fall on? Are you someone who fears God, has a great reverence for God, understands God as holy, but you feel like God has maybe got his crosshairs on you and is waiting for you to fail, waiting for you to mess up so that he can strike you down? And there's a fear there of that. I would say to you that if that is you, go and take some time to meditate on the character of God on a verse such as Exodus 34, maybe somewhere like Romans 8, and remember the character that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Um, maybe for you, you're someone who feels like you can never get right with your sin and, and constantly you're failing. Um, again, I would encourage you, look at this view of God. Yes, he is holy. Yes, he punishes sin, but he's also someone who shows Steadfast love. Um, Maybe you're the other side of the spectrum, though. You know that God loves you. You experience that, but the reverence of God for you is not there. Take some time to look at the passage in 2 Samuel 6, which shows the seriousness that God takes in, the call on our lives to be holy, the call for us not to be careless in our approach of God and not to be careless in our obedience to God. Take some time to think on that. and um, let that challenge you, let that shape you, let that lead you to live a holy life in light of the holiness of God. And for all of us today, what we notice in this text is that David right the way through worships God. He worships God and it describes that he worships him mightily. I think of us as a church at Hukanui, and I don't think anyone could accuse us of worshiping mightily before the Lord. so I would encourage us just as a side challenge. When we come and worship, we worship before a great and powerful God. Let us worship him, not worrying about what other people are thinking around us. Let us come and worship him. And that is the proper response. And for all of us here today, let us come and worship. So what I've asked is, as I said, we're coming to worship to finish. Would the worship team come up. Um, I want to give the space for reflection. For each of you to think and have space before this God that we've talked about today. Asking yourself how you view him. Confessing in the areas where you don't view him rightly. Asking him to draw near to you. Take take this space to speak to this God we've talked about. And then the worship team's going to lead into a time of worship and then Gavin's going to come up and pray. Um, But each of you today, would you take the space now as the worship band just plays to think about this God that we've talked about and how you view Him and how you relate to Him.